Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Sahil Khanna, co-host of our series, C. difficile, Preparing the Field for Change. This series consists of six postized episodes for all clinicians from gastroenterology, infectious diseases, hospital medicine, geriatric medicine, primary care, and from academic and community-based settings. We'll explore how to take a patient-centered approach to treatment, diagnosis, explore emerging treatment options, and discuss best practices for transitions of care. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the risk factors for C. difficile infection. We're joined by my co-host, Dr. Paul Forstadt. Dr. Forstadt is actively involved in research and other academic pursuits. His areas of interest include chronic diarrheal syndromes with a specific focus on Clostridoides difficile infection, the microbiota, ischemic disease of the gut, and eosinophilic disorders. He has presented his research extensively at national meetings and has authored and co-authored many manuscripts, textbook chapters, and online modules. Another passion of Dr. Furstad is teaching, frequently giving lectures locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally, and also mentoring fellows in the Division of Digestive Diseases at Yale New Haven Hospital, where he holds a clinical appointment as an assistant clinical professor of medicine. His clinical practice at the PAC Gastroenterology Division is his ultimate passion filling the majority of his work time as he sees a broad spectrum of patients with GI and hepatic disorders. Dr. Furstad is affiliated with the St. Raphael campus of the Yale New Haven Hospital, Yale New Haven Hospital, and the Milford campus of Bridgeport Hospital. Paul, it's great to have you today. Sahil, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, and I'm excited to discuss some risk factors. Paul, as you know, and a lot of our audience may know, that C. difficile is an urgent public health threat by the CDC. There's about a half a million people in the United States who get this infection every year, and people get recurrences. And there's probably globally a lot more people who get this infection. What do you think? Who gets this infection? You know, that's a really important question, Sahil, and I think something that that we grapple with on a daily basis, but a lot of clinicians also grapple with on a daily basis. And people who get C. difficile are largely, I think, grouped into kind of three categories, demographics, medication exposures, and environmental risk factors. And I know that it's important when we think about the risk factors to kind of consider the modifiable risk factors and the non-modifiable risk factors. So from a demographical standpoint, anybody over the age of 65, female gender, any form of immune compromise, chronic kidney disease, HIV, inflammatory bowel disease. So so this is something that's sort of been ballyhooed for a while. Whenever you look at a clinical trial, whenever you consider data in the C. difficile space, it appears that about 60% of the patients are women. Do you have any insight to why that might be? Now, I haven't seen anything in the literature. So what is your thought for why so many women or they, it's really 60, 40 women to men? Interesting question. Thank you for asking that and putting me on the spot. We don't know. We don't yeah. understand that. At least I don't. Yeah. We did some work and we figured out, is it because women are getting more antibiotics that men, than men are seeking more healthcare or getting more urinary tract infections because we see a woman preponderance in that? And the answer is really no. 
is there something inherent in the gut microbiome which is different between men and women? The answer could lie there, but the answer definitely lies where we have to study what the microbiome looked like before the antibiotic exposure, what happened during the antibiotic exposure, and then does C. difficile exposure to men and women affects them differently? The answer probably lies in there. I just don't know if we have that answer at this point. Right. But yes, we've seen that. Paul, the other right. point that you just pointed out was the majority of people are the over, over the age of 65. So it's safe to assume I'm 40 years old. I'll never get C. difficile. Right. The answer really is that you and I are both exposed to C. difficile all the time. And I have never been checked per se, but I'm pretty confident that I'm colonized, although I might not be. The reality here is that I think that we are at risk uh, being healthcare practitioners. I think that we're exposed to this all the time. I think it's probably within our within our system. I certainly put you on the spot before with the women versus men, but I think it's just a kind of a controversial topic because we don't have an explanation. And I think that's incredibly interesting. Could it be hormonal? Could it be hormonal impacting the microbiota? One very simple theory that I have, which is won't ever be studied in a clinical trial, has to do with whether women present to the doctor just simply more often. And I think you had mentioned that. But I think there's something to that. As men, men tend to not go to the doctor. And I mean, in certain studies, up to 10% of all individuals that get C. difficile will get better on their own. So perhaps maybe there's a proportion of men that just ignore their symptoms and get better on their own. So a fascinating topic. With regards to the risk factor of age, I think that it's important to consider medical comorbidities, right? We're much more likely as we get older and we keep ourselves in good shape, right? We exercise, we eat healthy, we do our best to keep our weight reduced. But with age, unfortunately, medical comorbidities kind of accumulate. In clinical practice, I can't tell you how often patients say, don't get old, right? But that's really because you can even take yourself, you know, take excellent care of yourself, but genetic predispositions to diabetes, genetic predispositions to hypertension, et cetera, lead us to have these risk factors. And we can't modify those, right? We can't modify our gender. We can't modify our age. We can fight mother nature as much as we want, but mother nature usually, usually wins. I think that really kind of the, the risk factors that we as clinicians can modify, you alluded to before, and those are the, the medications that we give right? So we have chemotherapeutic agents, which obviously we don't have a choice on, but medications like proton pump inhibitors, medications like antimicrobials, I think they can make a big difference. And I think infection control, and I think that antimicrobial stewardship, as we've seen, has started to bend the curve of the incidence of C. difficile, right? So we saw with the Alice Gu reference from the New England Journal of Medicine, that the estimated incidence of C. difficile went from 476,000 to 365,000. And that large bend in the curve happened because of a decrease in healthcare-associated infections. I think that that's largely a result of better infection control and better antimicrobial stewardship. What do you think? Absolutely. The modifiable risk factors are the one that we really need to look at. Our entire population is how I think about it. The CDC estimates that in the United States, we write 270 million antibiotic prescriptions every year. The common question that patients ask me is that, yeah, I got an antibiotic. So what? Big deal. My foot infection got better. 
but why did it give me C. difficile or why do all of these risk factors give me C. difficile infection? I think that's the one question that keeps coming back all the time. But yes, these modifiable risk factors are the one that we really need to keep a tab on. Yeah, and I, and I think, look, healthcare systems are being mindful of this. And interventions through antimicrobial stewardship on the inpatient side has made a profound difference, I think, for the incidence of healthcare-associated infection. The problem is that in the community, it's still a big issue. And there isn't that impetus of financial penalty that healthcare systems have. And look, financial penalty, unfortunately, motivates healthcare systems, but there's patients involved here. You know, the classic example is an individual who gets some sort of an infection and goes to a local urgent care clinic where an emergency room provider is staffing and, you know, they think they might have an upper respiratory tract infection. It's probably viral and they get an antibiotic just because the patient needs to feel like they got something to take home and to treat their symptoms. So I think that that element largely needs to be addressed. And and it's a problem because this is a major modifiable risk factor that will probably bend the curve on the community side. But I don't think we have the the system in place to educate enough to really kind of explain why it's so important for us as providers, as primary care providers, as urgent care clinic providers to not fulfill that urge to give somebody a medication where it might be a viral illness. All antimicrobials built the same? Are they different? What do you tell your patients? So obviously, any antimicrobial alters the microbiota. But in reality, we need to think about the classic antimicrobials associated with C. difficile, amoxicillin, ampicillin, clarithromycin, fluoroquinolone, cephalosporins, and more recently, piperacillin tazobactam has entered that list. So look, when I make that list and, I, and patients ask me, hey, you know, how did I get this? It's hard for them to wrap their heads around as a gastroenterologist. Well, the patient had diverticulitis. They needed antimicrobials somewhat debatable. We can talk about that at a different time, right? But they they needed cipro-metronidazole. And then they read online, well, metronidazole is a treatment for C. difficile, but it was part of the treatment that caused C. difficile. So it's a really kind of complicated process. So when I talk to patients about any medications, I say, look, whenever you put something in your body, no matter what it is, medication-wise, it's a toxin. We just believe that the benefits outweigh the risks. And it's the same thing with antimicrobials. We know that vancomycin is an effective treatment for C. difficile. It has been for decades. But we also know that vancomycin alters the microbiota and leaves patients prone to recurrence and also leaves them prone to the initial infection if they're not actively having toxin release from the C. difficile itself. So when we contextualize this with our patients, I think it's important to just categorize all antimicrobials together. Why is your dentist giving you that antimicrobial? Does it follow the standard of care in dentistry? Do you have an active infection? Is it so-called prophylaxis? Prophylaxis, And if it is prophylaxis, then you know what? It's probably indicated, but ask the dentist, say, look, is this something that's absolutely necessary? If it isn't, you might want to hold back from it, right? And then you get into the whole area of probiotics and probiotics for potential primary prevention. What are your thoughts on probiotics for prevention? If you ask 10 different gastroenterologists and 10 different ID doctors, you'll probably get 10 different ideas and answers on on probiotics for prevention of C. difficile. I'd say the number needed to treat is very high for probiotics. And we don't know if that number is really higher than if you give someone placebo or you don't give them anything. And on the probiotic industry, is not completely very well regulated. We don't know which of these probiotics would work. So 
I typically ask my patients that, yes, you may take a probiotic, more likely than not when you're on an antibiotic for C. difficile or for another infection, that antibiotic is by definition killing that probiotic. It may or may not help you in the future. And if I really have someone who's immunocompromised and is at a high risk from probiotic complications, I definitely ask them not to take a probiotic. But I think benefit is, is really, really, really questionable. Yeah, and I completely agree with everything you said. The one situation where I'm very consistent with probiotic usage, considering all the factors that you very eloquently outlined, are in patients that are looking for that, that safety net. Patients that have had a loved one who've gone through really challenging recurrent, multiply recurrent C. difficile, and they're looking for something to say, I'm helping or preventing. And what I say is what we say in medicine, first do no harm. So in the immune compromised host, yes, it could be potentially very, very harmful. But I think in general, you're right, whether or not it's a placebo effect, whether or not it's an actual effect, I think the jury's out on that. But this is, again, getting into kind of these modifiable risk factors. So if a patient requires antimicrobials, maybe there's some benefit here. There is some basic science data looking at Saccharomyces boulardii and the bile salt milieu and that potentially being preventative. But you're right, translating that into clinical practice, the data just simply is not as strong as we'd like to make broad statements. Now, environment also plays a key role in the spread of C. difficile. And this is where things, you know, everybody chuckles when we talk about this, but this is, this is a fun topic to talk about, right? Patients who are in hospitals, patients who are in skilled nursing facilities, living in skilled nursing facilities, they all get this, right? So from your standpoint, who's getting this and why within those facilities? I think anybody who's in an environment on planet Earth, there are human beings existing, is potentially getting exposed to C. difficile. We've seen that this organism is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Grocery stores, public bathrooms, potentially airplane seats, uh, meat processing plants, it's everywhere. And, but there are some environments where the pressure or the prevalence or the amount of bacterial spores that you're seeing in that environment is higher than others. And that's hospitals, healthcare, healthcare facilities, that's where other people have received antibiotics. Very interesting study that showed that if you occupy a hospital bed in which the previous occupant had received antibiotics, you now have a higher risk of getting C. difficile. Fascinating. You never get antibiotics, but somebody else got antibiotics on that same bed, you get C. difficile. So there is environment, but there is that category of different risks that you have within the environment. And then other on top of that, do you have non-modifiable risk factors that's going to increase your risk when you're in that particular environment where there's high pressure of C. seal? No, and I completely agree. And another wonderful hospital bed story comes from, from England, actually, from a number of years ago, where uh, they looked at the standard cleansing agents associated with healthcare systems, right? They use sodium hypochlorite per acetic acid, and essentially it's bleach. And they swabbed the beds of individual, the sheets of the individuals who had C. difficile and before it went in for cleaning. And then they swabbed them after cleaning. And there were 51 colony forming units per centimeter squared before and 33 colony forming units per centimeter squared after. So you realize those nice, clean, crisp white sheets might not be as clean and crisp as we think they are. So fascinating that the antimicrobial exposure also. So, so let's get this straight. So you have a situation where you have an individual who, let's say, gets antibiotics for a urinary tract infection. The next person gets C. difficile. 
And then the person after that gets C. difficile because the person before that had C. difficile. <laughs> so it's a mess. So the, the hospital environment, honestly, we need to think about the hospital environment like it's being coated with many, many different bugs. And I think that's an important, important concept. Another really fascinating study that I like to think about with the epidemiology and the spread of C. difficile, especially in a healthcare environment, are the toilets. So what happens when we flush the toilet? And Mark Wilcox did a wonderful study that looked at this now about 10 years ago, and it's whatever you are thinking, right? They flushed the toilet, they measured the volume of the spore in the vegetative phase over the toilet, and it was foul. But the volume of the spore in the vegetative phase decreased eightfold over 60 minutes and 11-fold over 90 minutes. So now there was one intervention, though, that they did that prevented that aerosolization, and it was a simple thing. They just put the lid down. But what's the problem with that in the hospital? There are no lids. There are no lids. There are no lids. So if there's no lids, because the lids, by the way, are nidises to spread infection or other infections, let's say, this is the sort of problem. I also view the hospital as, look, you're surrounded by other individuals with the risk factors that we listed before, the demographic risk factors, the medication exposure risk factors, and of course, the environmental. There's just so much to this. And this is where infection control, I think, plays a really, really important role, being mindful about this. I think one of the shifts with C. difficile came when, when alcohol-based hand sanitizers were placed outside of every patient's room. People became much more comfortable with using that form of disinfection, probably not being quite as cognizant that the spore phase is resistant to that. So even though people have good intentions, hand sanitizing in, hand sanitizing out of the rooms, it's still leaving patients prone and providers prone to truly spreading this infection. And it's interesting you say that when you look at guidelines that are from societies and from the CDC, most of the guidelines suggest that if you're not in, a, in an epidemic phase of C. difficile in your healthcare facility, you really don't have to use soap and water. You could use alcohol-based hand sanitizers. And as People who work in this field, it's mind baffling. It's like, why, why, why? Yeah. But yeah, those are the guidelines. And I think uh, that's there's some practicality to it. No, and I completely agree. Actually, healthcare systems are adapting to that, which is somewhat unfortunate in my mind, because C. difficile is the most common healthcare associated infection. But when they're building new hospitals, they're not putting sinks outside of many patient rooms. There's a new tower where I've been and they built that tower and there's a sink for every eight rooms. Well, if you have a team and you're rounding in an academic center or you're in a community hospital setting and you should be washing your hands after you see a patient with C. diff or a risk for C. diff with soap and water, I think it's important to have more sinks. So I think that that's another piece of this. And look, soap and water still is, I consider to be the gold standard for hand sanitization. So we're saying toilet lids and sinks probably can be helpful. But jokes apart, I think healthcare systems have done a tremendous amount of job. Every healthcare system has antimicrobial stewardship. There is dedicated cleaning practices, not only for C. difficile, but other organisms. What's your take on antimicrobial stewardship efforts that you have in your hospital and you've seen other places? Antimicrobial stewardship is tremendous. It, we saw it potentially bending the curve on a national scale, but I genuinely think it bends the curve locally also. We need to be mindful of what we're giving and who we're giving it to and not just broadly giving antimicrobials where the patient hits the ER with belly pain and we give them antimicrobials. There needs to be a clear indication because if there isn't, we clearly are causing other problems. And I, I think that it's really played an important role, especially with rolling in of COVID-19. 
you know, the uncertainty that came originally and still associated with this. And our fear, obviously, at that time was that a lot of patients are getting antimicrobials. We don't really know what we're treating. And there was going to be an increased risk of C. difficile. But the epidemiology studies have really been relatively mixed looking at the incidence of of C. difficile since the COVID-19 pandemic hit. And I think that's a large statement on the meticulous infection control probably that we've undergone also. Absolutely, Paul. And I try to empower my patients on antimicrobial stewardship. I discuss with them, if you are getting an outpatient antibiotic outside the hospital, ask your healthcare provider, could I get the most narrow spectrum possible which would be effective for the lowest duration of time that's going to be effective. And that'd be my antibiotic of choice for me. And I think patients are trying to have a buy-in into this kind of effect because people are asking all the time, what do we do with antibiotics? So yeah, antibiotic stewardship, both in the hospital and outside the hospital is going to be really, really key. And this effort has paid off in the last decade as we've seen. Completely, completely agreed. Completely agreed. It's important also to think about what therapies we would consider for patients that have risk factors for initial infection and for recurrence? And are we going to change what we do based upon those risk factors? Absolutely, Paul. I think this is paramount because there is a group of people who have risk factors for this disease coming back. And I think that's those are the kind of risk factors you have to think about when you think about therapy. Unfortunately, unlike other GI bugs, C. difficile is a gift that keeps on giving After people have one infection, there could be more than 20% risk of recurrence. And beyond that, it's higher, as you've published before, that 50 or 60% of people can keep getting this infection back when they have three or more episodes. What, in your opinion, Paul, predisposes these people to getting recurrent infections? What are the risk factors there? They really mimic the risk factors for initial infection with a couple of caveats, largely demographics, age over 65, immune compromise. Obviously, the antimicrobials, the more we can limit the antimicrobials, the better it is. And then environmental, right? If you're getting exposed initially, you're certainly going to be getting exposed again. So changing that environment or creating an environment that's safer for the patient, isolation, et cetera, probably will be a a key intervention that we can do to minimize that risk for our patients. Well, what about PPIs as a risk factor for recurrence? So we're gastroenterologists. So PPIs are essentially given to most patients that we see. And look, the mechanisms behind PPIs and C. difficile incidence and recurrence are unclear, right? In one sense, we know that the spore phase is resistant to gastric acid. And therefore, when we swallow it, it gets through the gastric acid and into our small bowel, potentially causing the infection. And decreasing that acid would decrease that ability to wipe out the vegetative phase of the infection. Alternatively, PPIs have been shown to be associated with microbiota changes. And some providers and some thought leaders in the in the C. difficile space don't even believe there is an association, even though these large trials show an increased incidence of C. difficile initially and, and an incident, increased risk of recurrence. So I think the bigger question is, do we change our practice or do we intervene on patients receiving PPIs? And I handle it just like antimicrobial stewardship. Does the patient need a PPI? Do they have documented erosive esophagitis? Do they have Barrett's esophagus? Do they have a clear indication that requires that medication? But honestly, I think we should be doing that already. So that's sort of standard practice in my mind. What are your thoughts, Sahil? If I have someone with Barrett's esophagus to get a PPI, if I have someone with grade C or grade D esophagitis, they get a PPI. 
Before that grade A, grade B esophagitis, I tend to have a discussion, talk about can I use H2 blockers, maybe a little bit better than a PPI. Right. And if somebody truly has does not have reflux disease or peptic ulcer disease and potentially has dyspepsia, I start thinking about alternate therapies. If you don't need a PPI, you shouldn't get a PPI. Think amongst all of the bad press that PPIs have gotten, there's a couple true, true related epidemiological associations and recurrent CDF seal being one of them. PPI stewardship is as important as antibiotic stewardship as much as we can. No, I completely agree. And and look, C. difficile is just one reason, but community-associated pneumonia, B12 deficiencies, osteoporotic fractures, acute kidney injury or kidney uh, you know, creatinine increases, I think all need to be considered in that. With that being said, PPIs, I still believe, are, are safe medications and they are very effective if they're used in the right population. Perfect. Paul, I purposefully did not answer one of her questions. That how, how do these risk factors modify treatment for C. difficile? But we have six episodes. We're going to talk about that in one of the future episodes as to how do we actually choose therapy for C. difficile. I'm going to thank you, Paul, for this excellent discussion today. Thank you for all our listeners for tuning into our series on C. difficile, preparing the field for change, which was supported by educational grants from Immune Therapeutics, Series Therapeutics, and Ferring Pharmaceuticals. And special thanks to today's guest, Dr. Paul Forrestad. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here, and this was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.